this afternoon comes from Exodus 32. Exodus 32, this is in connection with the second commandment, which is the topic which we'll be studying this afternoon, dealing with the making of images with which to worship the Lord God. And we've seen an event where that happens in Exodus 32. Exodus 32, verse 1, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. 
He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let anyone who have gold, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about three thousand men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now, go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf the one that Aaron made. So far, the word of God. We turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of Christian doctrine. We find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 35. That's on page 552. There, the question is, what does God require in the second commandment? We are not to make an image of God in any way, nor to worship Him in any other manner than He has commanded in His Word. May we then not make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to make or have any images of them in order to worship them or to serve God through them. But may images not be tolerated in in the churches as books for the lady? No, for we should not be wiser than God. He wants his people to be taught, not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we're looking this afternoon at the second commandment of God's law. And as we do that, we want to remember what we saw two two times ago, that God gave us his law 
so that now that he set us free, we can know how to live as a freed people. The law is there to keep us near to the God who has given us liberty and to keep us from falling into sin, which would, again, enslave us and ultimately destroy us. So that's the the context in which the law was given. So this is another way to put it. This is the law of a father to his children for their good, for their benefit. Last week we looked at the first commandment, which, uh, which we, and we saw there that the big idea is that God has made us for relationship with himself. We were created to know God, to love him, and to live with him for his glory and for our joy. Uh, nothing will give us greater freedom than that there in the first commandment. And so the first commandment then is, is the central one, the most important one. Uh, we are to have no other gods but God. Not only is he a jealous God, uh, deserving of, of our worship and, and rightly demanding the honor that he's due, but also having other gods would rob us of our joy. Uh, we were made for him. And so he insists that we do know him and love him. And any, substituting anything else for him would ultimately rob us of the joy and security that, that we need. So that's the, the first commandment. You and I were made for relationship with God. Everything else in the law needs to be understood in relation to that first commandment. The second commandment is is very closely related, but it deals with a slightly different and more specific issue. And that's the use of images. Using images to to represent God and through which to worship Him. So Exodus 2 verse 4, let's just hear the commandment again. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So you see this commandment is not dealing with exactly the same issue as as the first one. And, And here's really the difference. The first commandment deals with who you worship. The second commandment deals with how you worship. In the first commandment, God commands us to worship Him. The second commandment, He he commands us to worship Him as He is in truth and not as we would like Him to be. That's the the purpose of an image, and we'll see that in in a moment. An example of uh, the abuse of this commandment is what we read in, in Exodus 32 from Uh, the foot of Mount Sinai. As Moses had gone up on the mountain, he'd been there for 40 days, and people uh, concluded that he must have died while he was up there. And so they come to Aaron, and they ask him to make gods for them. And so that's what Aaron did. He took their jewelry, he threw it into a fire, and his version of events is this uh, beautiful golden calf just walked out of the fire. What do you know? Of course, we're told the truth that he himself had fashioned the calf, sort of obvious, and he declares, but he declared to the people, Behold, these are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, the thing I want to point out about this episode that's not clear from the way it's translated in, in the English is that the people were not 
claiming to worship a different God than the one who brought them out of Egypt. In the ESV, it's in the plural. He says, behold your gods. But actually, the word for God in the Hebrew is always plural. It's just a unique word that way that's always written in the plural, even when it refers to the singular uh, God. And so you could just as well translate this, behold your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They weren't trying to worship a different God, and they specifically said they're, they're worshiping the one who brought them out of Egypt. So they were worshiping the true God. Uh, but they were trying to do it in the way that they were used to doing it in Egypt. And those gods all had images. Well, we know that God was not pleased with their worship. In verse 7, he says to Moses that, that the people have corrupted themselves and he was provoked to anger almost to the point of uh, of wiping the entire nation out now we want to be asking what's the big deal why is god so upset about the use of images if you were to ask the israelites um, during that episode they would probably argue even persuasively that they're not worshiping some other god Uh, They were worshiping the true God, and isn't that a good thing? And they might talk about how this image uh, helped them to just feel feel nearer to God, to to sense God's presence. Isn't that a good thing? And probably none of them would have even said that this golden calf is God. Uh, They didn't, uh, idol worshipers in that time didn't think of the the image itself as being the God, but the God inhabiting that image. You can see that in in the theologies of the the cultures around them. And in fact, even Hindus today who worship gods uh, think of their gods in the same way. The image is not God, but God somehow inhabits the the image. And, And so they would have argued, we're not worshiping the image, we're worshiping God. We're just using the image for that purpose. So what's the big deal? Why is God so bothered by images that there's a second commandment here just to deal with this issue? Well, to understand this, we need to remember the first commandment and the reason for the first commandment. God commands us, have no other gods but me. Why? Because God has created us to know him to love him, and to live with him. And to substitute some other God, still working on the first commandment here, to substitute some other God for him is to rob him of the glory that he deserves and to rob ourselves of the relationship with him that we ourselves need. And here's the thing, whether we recognize this immediately or not with the use of images, worshiping God through an image effectively does the same thing as worshiping some other god. It corrupts our knowledge of who God is. It breaks down the relationship that we would have with God for a relationship that we'll now have with this image and and also with the idea of God that we have in our minds that's supposed to lie behind this image. To illustrate this, uh, you might imagine yourself asking uh, one of those Israelites, why a calf? Why did you make a golden calf of all, of all things? What does a calf have in common with God? 
Well, when we read about a calf, we shouldn't think about a, a baby, you know, a newborn calf. Uh, the word commonly refers to a yearling, a year-old bull. And, and to the Israelites, nothing re- represented strength and might and power better than a year-old bull. And so that's the image that they chose to use for God. So in a way, that image says something true about God. God is strong. God is mighty. God is powerful. But here's the thing. Is God's power like a bull's power? Well, no, it isn't. A bull is a pathetic image of of the power of God. A bull can pull a plow, and perhaps a strong bull can knock over a wall. God speaks and creates the entire universe. Is a bull really all that like God? A second question, how wise? How wise is a new, uh, a year-old bull? How loving is a year-old bull? How merciful is a year-old bull? On all counts, a bull is a very poor image of God. And the third question, what kind of relationship do you have with a year-old bull? Who loves and and serves and trusts a year-old bull? Who pours out the intimate thoughts of their heart before a year-old bull? I don't know if the dairy farmers do that, but I suspect probably not. Well, here's the point. The image of God that they chose was a pathetic distortion of the true and living God. The Israelites wanted God's power, but not the rest of God. Not the holiness, not the intimacy, not the accountability. And so this this image that they chose to worship God became a corruption of the truth. It's a visible lie. Anyone who would seek to relate to God through this bowl will, by so doing, forsake the living God and no longer will know him as he truly is. They're worshiping and serving a lie instead of worshiping and serving God. And so an image provokes God's jealousy. Second commandment speaks at length about God's jealousy because it inevitably becomes a substitute for God. And and it's a blasphemous substitute. We need to understand this. The glory of God fills the entire universe. His righteousness, His goodness, His wisdom, His justice, His power, His mercy, all are beyond comprehension, and no image can ever portray God for who He really is. When we try to make an image of God or to worship God through an image, what we're trying to do is we're trying to reduce God to something that's manageable. Something we can set up in our living room. Something we can do certain ceremonies around and feel like we're happy with the God that we have. Something something we can handle. And not only does that break down the relationship that God would have with us, who is not a God that we can manage, but it's also blasphemous. It robs God of the glory that he deserves. And as pious as it might have looked, I suspect this feast was quite pious, very very religious and sanctimonious. And as innocent as the Israelites might have believed that they were in setting up this golden calf, it's fundamentally rebellion against God. 
It's rebellion against him. It's saying, I don't like the God that I know or the way that he's revealed himself. And so I'm going to know him the way I want to know him. I'm going to know the God that I like instead of the God that, that has revealed himself. And I'm going to relate to him in a way that makes me feel comfortable instead of a way that gives him the honor and glory he deserves. At that point, whatever God you claim to be worshiping, it isn't God anymore. It's a God of your imagination. Because God doesn't change when my image or my opinion of him changes. He doesn't bow down to my preferences. He's God. And if I'm making an image, the question becomes, who am I to think that I can make God in my image? This rebellion becomes uh, all the more obvious when you, when you look at the effects. And, and Exodus 32 is written so that we can see the, the consequences of what happens when we make an image of God. See, God calls us to, learn, uh, to, to live certain lives before him. He calls us, for example, to put sin to death. He calls us to, to live in righteousness. And when we make an image of God, the result of that is that we can also substitute, uh, in, instead of the, the life service that God requires of us, we can s- substitute that with devotion and service to this image. If I give this image a gift, I've given God a gift. If I do something for this image, I have served God. And what that means is, I can live in disobedience to God as long as I render good service to this image. And that's exactly what happened with with the Israelites. They made this golden calf. They called it an image of God. And they bowed before it. It says they ate and drank and then rose up to play. And it's obviously a reference to sexual immorality. Image worship ultimately serves to sever our relationship with the living God so that we can serve the idea of God that we prefer instead of him and still consider ourselves pretty godly and, and pious people, even while living a life that God detests. Now, that was, that was more than 3,000 years ago. Is this commandment still relevant for us today? And probably most of us don't have an image of God set up somewhere in our living room before whom we bow, although I've been in a living room where they did. Uh, But the first thing that we need to recognize is that it has always been a temptation throughout human history to worship God through the use of images. And that temptation is never very far away. Even even Israel under Jeroboam ended up falling right back into the exact same temptation that the Israelites fell into at Mount Sinai, making golden calves. This time he made two of them. Now, we can, be, we can be thankful that God has preserved us, most of us, I, I imagine, from, from going there, from having some idol or image set up in our home. We can be thankful for that. But that doesn't mean that it's a temptation that is no longer a struggle for us. And that's the lesson you learn if you, if you look at church history as well, because this Lord's Day was obviously written with the Roman Catholic Church also in mind. The Roman Catholic Church now defends the use of images. 
On the ancient Christian church, it was the unanimous testimony of the early church fathers that God may not ever be worshipped through the use of images. Any, any suggestion that the early church was, was somehow okay with that is simply out of touch with reality. There are Roman Catholics that attempt to make that argument. It's simply not tenable. If you think about it, the, the earliest churches were Jewish synagogues. Uh, they were simply Jewish synagogues that had converted to Christ and, and after the exile, the Jews, if there's one commandment the Jews finally got down, it was probably this one. They detested the use of images. They were fiercely opposed to them. You can see that in the records of the Pharisees. They, they hated the thought of ever using an image for God. They got all sorts of other things wrong, but that was one thing they had right. So does anybody really think that the early church, made up largely of converted Jews, suddenly became a church that would worship God through images? Well, the resounding witness of the church fathers is that they soundly rejected uh, the use of images. In fact, you can even find that, that testimony from pagan writers writing about the early Christians. And, and they said one of the things that troubled them about Christian churches is that they never had any images of God, and, and pagans uh, were, were comfortable with the idea of having images of God. And so Christians were often even called atheists because they didn't have any images of God. And pagans looked at that and said, well, then they must not have any gods. The sad thing, though, is that it didn't take very long for that to be undermined. Initially, it was soundly condemned by the church fathers, and there are numerous testimonies of that. But it only took a few centuries before images started appearing in the church again. Now, one can make all kinds of distinctions to try and justify the use of images. And the Roman Catholic Church does try to make those distinctions. But here's the thing. God emphasizes in this commandment, more than any other commandment, his jealousy. God is a jealous God and the second commandment is pretty clear. Uh, some have argued that the second commandment is only about worshiping false gods uh, through images. It doesn't say anything about worshiping the true God. The problem is that's not what the commandment says. The commandment says don't make an image for the purpose of bowing down to it or serving it. And an obvious uh, counterexample is, is the incident in Exodus 32. They were worshiping the true God through the use of images, and God judged them for it. Now, others would argue, well, we're not really worshiping the images. We're, we're really just venerating them. That's the, the official term the Roman Catholic Church uses. Uh, veneration is, is simply respect that you pay to something or someone, and, and worship only belongs to God, they will argue. Now, for one thing, it should be said that that distinction is totally lost on the average Roman Catholic layperson who does see themselves as worshiping uh, that image or worshiping God through it. But even more importantly, redefining our terms doesn't redefine God's terms. The second commandment is very clear. It says, do not make images in order to bow down to them. Do you have an image? Do you bow down to it? If so, you are breaking the second commandment. It doesn't make any distinction between worship and, and veneration. 
And so if we're doing this, we are violating the second commandment. This is not how God wants to be worshipped. Do we make light of God's jealousy that he warns us about in such strict terms? And that hasn't changed just because Jesus has come to earth. This is another argument that's, that's sometimes made. Now that Jesus has come to earth, God has a visible form in Jesus. Well, that's certainly true. God did appear visibly in the person of Jesus. But that does not make it now okay to worship or venerate a picture or statue of Jesus. Jesus is in heaven. Worship him there. See, the reason this commandment is here as a distinct commandment is because our hearts have a constant inclination to go in that direction, to fall for the same thing over and over. And we can give whatever excuses or distinctions that we want, but it's playing with God's jealousy. It's playing with fire. He wants us to worship him in spirit and truth, not through the use of images. If we love our God... We, we keep this commandment respecting God's jealousy. Now the commandment also, or, or the catechism, excuse me, also asks whether we can have pictures in the church as, as books for the lady, which is to say as, as teaching tools for, for people that can't read. Uh, this, is, this is the Lutheran argument. The Lutheran churches permit the use of images. So if you go there, you'll see probably stained glass windows full of murals and, and all sorts of, of images. And they say these are teaching tools, and they're fine as long as you don't worship them. Technically, you're keeping the commandment. You're not bowing down to them or, or serving them. Uh, and so they say, isn't, isn't that acceptable? Well, to answer that question, we need to, to say in the first place that, that God, for God's part, God is spirit, and cannot be visibly portrayed. That's the point the commandment or, or the catechism makes. So as far as God is concerned, the answer is very clear. We should never make an image of him because such depictions will always be distortions of the truth. The, the, the image that many, many people in our culture have of God as, as a big man with a long white beard sitting on a cloud somewhere in heaven is unbiblical. It's false. It's a distortion of the truth. It's, it's in fact, blasphemous and belittling to God. If we're talking about... So if we're talking about pictures of God, the answer is very clear. If we're talking about pictures of the apostles or events in the Bible, we can, we can say that, sure, these things have their place. And yet, Reformed churches have always insisted that it's still unwise to have them in the worship service because of the tendency that exists in our hearts to bow down to them and to worship them or to treat them as, as sort of sacred images deserving of some special respect. And I would add to that also because of the distraction that such images can bring. You can only imagine you parents have children in the worship services. How much would they get out of the preaching if they had all kinds of amazing images to be staring at instead? See, it's a very low view of the congregation that says that if people can't read, then they can just have pictures instead. Can people not hear the word of God? Are they not intelligent enough to, to hear and understand? 
So the Reformed churches have always insisted that, that we don't have images in worship so that we can focus on the Word of God. This is also has been one of the, the primary drivers since the Reformed times of having schools where children are taught to read. The, first, the initial purpose of schools was so that they would be capable of reading God's Word. Now, it's true that if you take the tabernacle in the Old Testament, it's true the tabernacle had things like blue pomegranates uh, woven into, into the curtains. And so we can't say that all images or any depictions of every kind are forbidden within the, the context of worship. We have uh, carvings uh, embedded into, into the wood of the pulpit. We have things like that. We have flowers that, that people can look at. Not all not all visual things are, are forbidden. That isn't the point. But those are not the same thing as filling the walls with depictions, say, of Jesus' suffering and death or of the apostles' uh, work and ministry or of Abraham and his encounter with, with angels, the sorts of things that you find in, in Roman Catholic and Lutheran and, and Eastern Orthodox churches. The fact is these things distract from the preaching of God's word. God wants us to have a relationship with him, and he does so through his word. Yes, we, we can make our churches beautiful. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. But God wants us to learn from his word so we would relate to him in heaven as he is and not fall into the temptation to make images of him or to worship him through images. So that's the, the call in the commandment that we have here, that we would reject any form of worship that makes use of images in order to to draw us nearer to God or to worship Him through them. But one more thing that we should recognize, though, we should recognize that physical images are not the only way to violate this commandment. If the call in this commandment is to know your God, to worship him in spirit and truth as he really is, and to do that through his word, we can also break this commandment by simply choosing not to know him as he is, and instead to make him in our minds into a God of our own choosing. It's the same sin as the sin of the Israelites with the golden calf, but just no golden calf. It's still choosing not to know God as he is, as he has revealed himself, and instead choosing to know him as we would like to imagine him to be. Either way, it's rejecting relationship with the true God in favor of relationship with our own imagination. Brothers and sisters, guard yourselves against this temptation. God calls you to know him as he really is, and, and thus to love him and have relationship with him. And the way you will do that is by spending time in God's word, to hear how he reveals himself. See, there are many self-professed Christians in this country who, who never go to church, who never spend time in God's word, and yet who claim to have a relationship with God. That is idolatry. It's not knowing God for who he really is. They have a a mental image of God set up in their minds. So someone might say something like, well, you know, I think that God is love. 
not wrath. Well, do you think that? Is that what God says? Or is that what you would like God to have said? Is that your preference for what God is like? It's true. 1 John 4 says God is love. Hebrews 12 says God is a consuming fire. Is that how we play the game? Or are we going to learn from God's word about who he really is? Or are we going to pick and choose texts to match the idea of the God that we would like him to be? Well, don't be content with the God of your own opinion or the God of your own imagination. Come to God as he is, as he reveals himself. I've heard this said, me and my boyfriend love each other, and so I don't think God will judge us for for living together and sleeping together. He knows our hearts. Really? Do you think so about God? Well, which God are we talking about? Which God are you seeking to know and be in relationship with? Because the God who created you and who has revealed himself in his word He calls that sexual immorality, and he calls it sin. And he does judge it. You may say, God won't judge me. God says, I will. Are we talking about the same God here? In fact, this is precisely the sin of the Israelites in Exodus 32. They worship their imagination of God through the golden calf. And and conveniently, that God seemed to have no problem with them rising up to play for sexual immorality. In their imagination, God was okay with this. But God was not okay with it. Well, brothers and sisters, God gave us this commandment because he desires that we would know him as he is, love him for who he is, and live in relationship with him. And and he does so, number one, because he deserves that honor, and it's sin to take it away from him. And number two, because nothing else can ever satisfy the longing in our souls to know the true God and the living God. We were made for relationship with the true God and no one else. Nothing else will ever give us the life and joy and meaning and purpose for which we were created. He gives us this command, not just for his glory, but also for our joy. See, true worship is knowing God for who he is, coming to know his glory, which far surpasses our imagination. And, and, and yes, that means sometimes you will be uncomfortable with your God. What did you expect? You were made for him, not he for you. He is God, eternal, wise, and, and uncompromised in his holiness, What would ever make anyone think that we could live in relationship with him without ever being uncomfortable? He warns us his ways are higher than our ways. Sometimes his priorities are not our priorities. Sometimes he will say no to things where we would like him to say yes. But he's God. Did you expect any different? In fact, really, this is what it means to to genuinely live in relationship with with anybody who, who is not yourself. I don't have a single relationship on earth uh, with, with anybody where they always support me and always approve of everything that I would like to do and never disagree with me or, and never correct me. Not even my wife. I'm not sure, not sure why. I don't have a single friend who agrees with 
everything that I'd like them to, to agree with. And if I did, if I did have such a friend, Scripture actually warns me to be suspicious of them. Proverbs 29, verse 5, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Proverbs 27, verse 6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Well, if that's true of my friends here on earth, how much more is that true of God? Why would I assume that God would always conform to my opinions? If my understanding of God happens to, just happens to agree with all of my preferences and my personality and always supports my instincts and never rebukes me, never calls me to account, then I can be sure that that God is nothing but a figment of my own imagination. The God who's revealed himself in Scripture does call me to account. He does rebuke me when I'm wrong. He has much to say to me, and much of it will make me uncomfortable. He calls my sin what it is. He corrects my wrong perspectives. He refuses to tolerate my excuses that I make for myself. That is the true and living God. And brothers and sisters, It's that God who sent Jesus Christ into this world to pay for our sins, to bear the punishment on himself, and to make us his children. See, that's why this commandment is good news. The living God will comfort you in loneliness and relieve your fears and hold you secure and quench your spiritual thirst and make you holy and fill your life with meaning and purpose in a way that a God of your imagination could never come close. God wants us to know him and not who he would be in our imagination because imaginary gods cannot save us. They cannot atone for the sin that we know we have. And, and, the, and the fact is we... Whether we worship a God of our imagination or not, we are always running from the true God unless we know him as he is in Jesus Christ. And so he calls us to know him because he desires that we would live, that we would find life in him. See, God is jealous for the honor that he's due, but he's also merciful beyond belief to those who would draw near to him as he is in Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, throw away any conceptions of God that you might have that are not grounded in truth. You don't need them. Yes, the living God is far more fearsome, far more glorious, and far more uncomfortable than those conceptions. He will expose your sin. He will trouble your conscience. He will change you into his image. But in Christ He will never cast you away. He will not condemn you. Throw away the idols that exist within your heart and draw near to the living God, the God who's revealed himself in his word, in the world that he has made, and you will find in him grace in Christ and joy and glory beyond imagination because he has made you for himself to know him. And in Christ 
He's also reconciled you to himself to be able to call you his child so that we can know him again and find our life in him. Amen. Let's respond by singing from Psalm 115, stanzas 1 through 5. <clears throat>